Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Howdy, Wine and Dime listeners. I am very excited today to introduce our guest, John Ninfo. John is an extraordinary background and happens to be from Sicily. And I couldn't believe it. He's not a wine drinker. In all seriousness, I think you're really going to enjoy this show because we talk about something that's really serious in nature in this country, but he turns it into a fun conversation. If you want to know what I'm drinking today in honor of this, it's an Italian wine that unfortunately I can't even pronounce. But I went to GCP and I went to the Italian section and I decided to look for something that I had no idea what it was. Ironically, while I was searching for this wine, I was listening to a podcast called Wine for Normal People. And what area did they cover? Sicily. So if you really want to know more about wine from the Sicily area, then I would recommend that you uh, subscribe to Wine for Normal People. They are not paying me for that. They don't even know that I'm making the recommendation for that. But listen to that podcast specifically about Sicily. Go to your favorite winery or I should say wine shop and explore because as you know, life is about events supported by your dollars and cents. We hope you enjoy the show. You are listening to Wine and Dime, the podcast that combines two passions, wine and personal finance with your host, Amy Irvine. Amy is a certified financial planner and owner of Rooted Planning Group and author of Uncork Your Finances. You can learn more about Amy by heading over to the website, www.rootedpg.com. And now on to the show. Take it away, Amy. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. Today's guest is John Ninfo. John is a retired bankruptcy judge, and he started a program called CARE, Credit Abuse Resistance Education. It's something that he started in the school system in 1997 and formally was founded in 2002. And today we are actually prior to me even hitting the record button. I've learned a bunch about him that I can't wait to share with the rest of them. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm so excited. So John, um, John and I were introduced by Scott Dumont, who's another financial planner that works at our firm and is also a professor at Alfred State College. And he told me that you would not let me down as a guest, that you would be very dynamic. And within the first 15 minutes of meeting you, I have to say, Scott, you are absolutely right. So I am very, very, very excited. So I'll give you a little background. Great. So my grandmother, my Sicilian grandmother, used to refer to me as a parla parla, which is someone who talks all the time. (laughs) 
<laughs> so <laughs> that's why. <laughs> well, we're excited to have you and for you to talk all the time during this show because um, you mentioned to me prior again to me hitting the record button, you mentioned that you were in, in 1968, you had joined, well, you were drafted into the Marines and you did two years of service. And that's where you actually found your passion for law was in that two years of service in the Marine Corps. So prior to that, what did you tell me you wanted to do? Well, I had, I, I, I had a BS in psychology. So I thought that I was going to be a clinical psychologist. Of course, once I decided to law, go to law school, Every one of my friends and family, including my father, said, ah, I knew you should always be a lawyer. <laughs> you would make a lousy psychologist. <laughs> Although I do think as a lawyer, you're trying to sort of right. gauge what people are saying. Well, it is funny because people ask me all the time, did you ever use your psychology degree when you were judge? And I said, well, pretty much every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like us in the financial um, profession, um, people ask me, students often when I go to speak at the college will ask me what classes uh, I wish I had taken more of. And honestly, psychology is definitely a class I wish I had taken more of. And I've over the years taken classes here and there to try to increase my knowledge of that. But every day we're, we're sitting here listening. You were sitting on the bench listening. I sit in this office and listen to people talk about the emotion behind money. So we've both had this opportunity from different angles to work with people around money. Tell me, first of all, you grew up in a Sicilian family. You mentioned that. you Immigrant Sicilian family. Okay. So you had that history, Mm -hmm. right? And, And I'm sure that money was something that wasn't necessarily talked about, but it was understood that, you know, that there was only a finite amount of it. Well... I was fortunate because my father was a physician. He was an obstetrician gynecologist. But to put that in retrospect and in context, he was the only one in his family ever go to college. Um, and my so grandparents... Was your father first generation immigrant or your my, grandparents? My grandparents came from Italy. Okay. His older sister was born in Sicily. Okay. But then he was born here. Okay. Um so he, they, they basically invested in him, and that's really the world. Um, they sent him to college at St. Mike's University of Toronto because they could not even afford to send him to college in the United States. Mm-hmm. My grandparents never had a home. They always rented for their whole life. When he went to school at that time, he used to make 23 beds every morning before he went to class. But he did become a physician. Uh-huh. But then... Um, he always had that work ethic. He always had that, you know, Sicilian. And when I talk to students in the school, one of the things I talk to them about is money is about hard work. Mm -hmm. If you always remember that money is about hard work, you will always want to get the best value for it. And so associate money with hard work. And I always tell them the story of, you know, about savings and hard work. So in my family, before I could even get a work permit, my father signed me up to be a voluntary x-ray orderly at Highland Hospital in Rochester. Okay. I wasn't a candy striper. I literally worked from 7.30 in the morning till 3.30, the shift that all the other x-ray orderlies worked Mm -hmm. on. And I did exactly what they did and and didn't get paid because my father said, you're not sitting around here all summer. Okay. (laughs) doing nothing. You're going to work. And he made me work retail. Yeah, that's hard. Made me work construction. 
made me work restaurant, everything, because he wanted me to be exposed to everything. And even after my first year in law school, I always tell the kids, I didn't get some fancy internship because I needed the money. Mm-hmm. So I worked on a mason crew in Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. hauling bricks and mortar. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, if you have that work ethic, mm-hmm. if you associate money with hard work, you will never spend it foolishly. You will always want to get value for it. You will become what I call frugal, not yeah. cheap. And, you know, we we talk about the psychology of money a lot around here. And, and that is a piece of it, right? So a lot of people think, because I'm in finance, like, well, you know, she's got it together. She's going to reach actualization. And what I tell people is that your psychology around money is going to date back to when you were a kid, right? So in reality, I have the bad lady syndrome. Like, even though I'm a saver, even though, even though I'm frugal, I am terrified that I'm going to run out of money. And so I'm very sensible about it. And even when I think logically about it, you know, I can look at the numbers and I can look at the projections and I understand that my plan is going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I still always come back to that frugality, that sort of bag lady syndrome worry oh, that I have, where other people will look at that and say, I've got the money. I want to spend the money on something that makes me look um, like I've got the money. Right. And, and even though they might be frugal deep down, they still have that desire to share, you know, visually that they've achieved a certain level of success based on what they might have as a car and, you know, house or whatever. So I think another piece of that is, you know, the education that you're talking about. So again, I go back to, you know, we're formed in those early years. So I've always said that our school system needs to have more formal education in it around money. This is something that every student is always going to use. You know, I can't understand why we would say to a student, look, you have to have, you know, a math class and, and understanding that math is something that we use every day in our life too. But finance, man, that really can harm us if we're making bad decisions or uneducated decisions in our lives as well. And the two can go hand in hand, in my opinion. So knowing that there's this system out there where you're going in and you're going in under your professional name of... Well, kids call me Judge John, but sometimes I go into the schools as Captain America. <laughs> so I think all dressed so cool. as Captain America. Um, I always wanted to be Wonder Woman, but, you know. <laughs> but the only reason I do that, to be honest, Amy, is I am actually the real Captain America. No, you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. So I want to reflect on two things. One is how your view of money is so much formed in in your upbringing because yeah. I just wrote a three-part series. I write a weekly column in the Daily Messenger in, in Canada on personal finance. And I just wrote a three-part column on uh, advice for newlyweds or couples. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And one of them is you've got to have a discussion about yeah. your views of money and how you use debt before you get married or yeah. build your relationship. And it will reflect so much yeah. of what, your upbringing. That's too funny. We actually have a, a webinar class that we offer and we just did last week's podcast was on couples and money. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's very, you're absolutely right. And how many divorces um, happen because couples don't have a collaboration or an agreement around their money. That's one of the mm-hmm. leading causes of divorce. 
Well, interesting because in my program, when I go out and do the programs in the schools and I do this introduction, one of the things I tell them about why you really have to learn about money is because eight of the top 14 stressors today in life mm-hmm. are money related. Yeah. And in fact, it is the number one cause of divorce. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the statistic that you read. Sometimes it's uh, infidelity. Sometimes it's money, but sometimes it's the combination of the two. It's, it's monetary infidelity. So it's not, you know, physical infidelity, but people actually doing things behind each other's back that causes, um, you know, that, that divorce to happen. So the show is called Wine and Dime. And you being from Sicily, I have to know, I usually ask this question in the beginning, but I'm so excited to get the listeners to know a little bit about your background. Are you a wine fan? Um, actually, no. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sometimes embarrassed to say that, except when I go to Italy, which is about every year. Are so you a wine fan then? I have to be because <laughs> otherwise I would just be, everybody would be on me like a cheap suit, you know. <laughs> But um, we just actually were in Sicily for 10 days uh, in June. Okay. Um, and we've been there several times. But, um, yeah, I, I just can I tell you a little story. You can, please. So we were in Sicily. My family comes from a little mountain town called Santa Stefano di Camastro on the north coast of Sicily. <clears throat> and they're famous there for ceramics, not the only place in Sicily or Italy that's famous for ceramics. But they are. They even have a wonderful museum there. And about 15 years ago, before he passed away, we took my father there. He'd never been there. Although he fought in World War II in Italy with the 10th Mountain Division, he'd never been to Sicily, to our hometown. And he was walking around one day and he said, now I know what my father, my grandfather, Mm -hmm. meant when he said, after school, he used to make plates. We all thought he was crazy <laughs> or whatever because he only had a fourth grade education. What was he talking about? Mm-hmm. But then we realized that he probably, after school, literally worked in a ceramics cottage mm-hmm. making plates. And so, it's amazing. Yes, we all have those stories that of our yeah. history, you know, and, and that's just a kind of a cute story. So, this is a wonderful mountain town in Sicily where in 2017, they were still using donkeys to collect some of the In garbage. 2017. Yes. Wow. So two <laughs> years ago. Wow. <laughs> so okay. you talk about poor. <laughs> okay. So when you go home and you said you ha- you have to drink wine at that point in time, is there a favorite variety that you like? Um, I like the heavier, okay. you know, Italian wines like Monte Picciano. Yep. The heavier ones. Okay. Yeah. So if you're going to drink wine, make yeah, it... Make with a punch is exactly. what you're saying. Okay. Do you have a favorite beverage in general? Do you- I'm a scotch. You're a scotch. I thought yeah. I recalled that you mentioned that to me. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of funny because um, at one point before he passed away, my father and I went to Scotland to play golf. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea that even though we were both scotch drinkers, that we would go on this campaign to try as many single malt scotches <laughs> as possible. So when we got to Scotland, we'd know exactly what we liked the most. And so I kept this notebook of the different <laughs> scotches that, that I had tried. I got to do my mind. Right. Yep. <laughs> and I had a Michael Jackson book, not the singer, but Michael Jackson <laughs> is a scotch, yeah. uh, per, you know, uh, person. So this is a funny story. I'll just tell you this. My life is full of stories and they're all funny. <laughs> that's the problem. So my wife doesn't think they're great. so funny. <laughs> so one day I'm standing in this liquor store in Rochester in front of all the single malt scotches. Would it be Market View? It was, it oh. was something called White House oh, in those okay. days. Okay. okay. And I'm standing there with my book and my J- Michael Jackson book and I'm looking at all these things and the mayor of Rochester comes up to me. 
who is an attorney at that time, mm-hmm. who was an attorney before going uh, to become the mayor. And he said, okay, Ninfo, said, what are you doing now? <laughs> and I explained this whole thing to him and he says, I got to get a hobby like that. <laughs> so it's not wine. But <laughs> it's, a thing, it's the same idea of, of you know, I, I served when I served first started drinking wine. It was, it was not wine for pleasure. It was more just, okay, everybody's sitting around having a glass of wine. I'm going to have a glass of wine. And it was very sweet. You know, oh. now I've gone the complete opposite direction oh, okay. and I'm as dry as dry can be. And, um, even, even to the point where I, I had a friend that said, if it makes you go, then Amy likes it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the same idea behind it. So I want to, um, I want to step back for just a second. You decided that law was the direction that you wanted to go, but you became uh, a bankruptcy attorney and known by some as one of the hardest bankruptcy attorneys in the United States. So what made you decide to go in that direction out of all the different types of law that you could practice? Um, well, as we talked, life's about opportunities and you never know what is going to happen. But as long as you position yourself for opportunities. So I graduated from law school in 1973. And in 1974, with the law firm I was in, um, I had taken bankruptcy law in law school and thought it was really interesting. And by the way, just to get down, I never went to law school to help anybody. And I never went to law school to make a lot of money. I went to law school because I thought it was an amazing intellectual profession mm-hmm. from the exposure that I had to. Mm-hmm. And so I'd taken bankruptcy law and I was very interested in it. And bankruptcy be- started to become a little more prevalent in the middle 70s than it had been before, especially in this context in Rochester. And so I literally, out of my own pocket, bought a um, a set of books on bankruptcy, Collier on bankruptcy, and the firm didn't pay for it. I paid for it myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I decided I was going to self-train myself. So I paid to go to certain conferences on bankruptcy so I could really learn it. Then what happened fortuitously, we went to statewide banking Yep. in like yep. 75. Yep. And so before that, we just had in Rochester places like Central Trust Company, Security Trust Company, mm-hmm. Lincoln Rochester Trust Company, none of the big banks like Hanover, Manufacturers Hanover, Citibank, or Bank of America, or any of you know these Chase or anything. Well, then we went to statewide banking, and what happened is my firm then started to represent Citibank, mm-hmm. and when Citibank came up, as did all the statewide banking new banks, they had to make some of the more risky loans because mm-hmm. all of the established local banks had all of the good mm-hmm. customers for generations. So they made some more risky loans and sometimes they failed. And so I was positioned to basically yeah. handle those cases on behalf of the firm. Okay. They didn't have to go outside. Yeah. And for 18 years before I went on the bench, I was what we would refer to as a commercial chapter 11 workout lawyer. And I represented 11 different banks doing mostly workouts in chapter 11s. Um, and so that was my bankruptcy background. But again, that idea of you're positioned, you've done something, you've taken some initiative, you've learned about bankruptcy yourself, the firm didn't pay for it, I bought my own books, I went to my own conference, and then I was rewarded. 
And, and when you when you decided to become a judge, mm-hmm. right? You, you took that next step in your career. What was your thought behind that? Because I know you're all about opportunities that are right. being presented to yourself. To be honest with you, because this is the kind of person I am, I thought that I could make a real difference. Um, I saw how our court was run, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I thought I could elevate it mm-hmm. and make it a better court um, and do things better. Um, I'm not saying that in any kind of a negative way. And so literally I took a big pay cut to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. to go on the bench because yeah. I really believed I could make a difference. I didn't have this thought of the care program or, right. or anything like that at that point. I just thought I could make a difference in my community and maybe beyond the community. So mentioning the care program, you're sitting on the bench right. and you start to have this idea formulate. Correct. And before it's even a formal program, you mentioned to me before we started recording that you went to the Bar Association and you said, would you like to do this as a program where we go into the schools? Am I, would, am I understanding it correctly? Um, it's not historically. So okay. in 1997, so here's what happened. I went on the bench in 1992. Uh-huh. And it increasingly became clear to me because, again, I had spent all my days in the bankruptcy courts, but in basically commercial cases, mm-hmm. not in everyday consumer mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really have much exposure to it and so forth. When I went on the bench, most of my days were spent with consumers because bankruptcy filings were really up At in that time, the, yeah. the yeah. early 90s. Dramatically. And and going into the late 90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. especially too, yeah. And even when I went on the bench, the hot, right now, the biggest increase in bankruptcies is people over 65. At that point, the biggest increase in bankruptcies were kids between 18 and 24. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I sat on the bench every day, asked a lot of questions because that's my nature, mm-hmm. and saw what I was seeing. And I came to the realization that we had a national epidemic of financial literacy in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were truly clueless about Still finances. Are, but it's, right, but at that point, yeah. even more so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I said, because I'm that kind of person, <laughs> I've got to do something about this mm-hmm. for the kids in my community. I didn't have some grandiose plan at that point. I just wanted to reach out to the kids in my community in the hopes that they wouldn't end up in my court mm-hmm. someday. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, in 1997, I started to go into the schools and I had a very, very busy, um, calendar, probably had five times more bankruptcies filed in my court than today. Wow. And a day you're saying five times, no, five times more a year than than today. Yep. Okay. Okay. And so by 2002, after I'd been in the schools for roughly five years, I couldn't get into as many schools as I wanted to because I was so busy every day trying to run the court. And it's not like I could do this at night. <laughs> I had to do it during the day and I'm running this very busy court and I just couldn't get out of the court enough to get to the school. So I went to the Bar Association in Rochester and I said, would you consider doing this with me as an outreach program of the Bar Association of the Bankruptcy Committee. And they said, yes. And so that way I was able to send other attorneys into the court. 
And then I said, well, this is ridiculous to just limit it to my community. So I started speaking at bankruptcy conferences. I started writing articles in bankruptcy law journals and so forth. And um, eventually I started traveling all over the country to open new programs. When people found out what I was doing in Rochester, mm -hmm. they said, well, we all should be doing this yeah. because the way I describe it, we're the boots on the ground. People, right, right. Okay. We're the ones who clean up everybody's mess every day from every demographic, okay? Every age group, every income level, every educational level, every geographic area, everybody. Mm -hmm. So we don't just see people with $400,000 net worth mm -hmm. that overspend or something. We see everybody. And so I call us the boots on the ground people. I say, we're not talk speakers, okay? We're the ones in the trenches every day, mm -hmm. cleaning up the messes. Mm -hmm. Or and trying so to. We have something to share. Mm -hmm. And... So other places around the country um, started to learn what I was doing and what we were doing in Rochester and said, we should be doing this. And so I would travel around the country. I'd go to Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'd be on two radio shows and a television show in the morning. I'd go to two schools so that the lawyers could come and watch it, mm -hmm. you know, and do programs. And then I'd give a newspaper interview and the next day I'd be gone. <laughs> you know? And I don't can tell you how many of those things I did. And by 2009, CARE was in all 50 states and in the District of Columbia. Not everywhere in every state, yeah. but had yeah. somebody in that state in some place that was doing it. So it really had become a national program, all run right out of Rochester. And so are they all attorneys that are doing this? Or is it people like myself who just truly care about the financial education, getting to the core of well, our students? Let me put it to you this way. Um, when I ran it, when I retired in 2000, at the end of 2011, I turned it over to the American Bankruptcy Institute because I knew I couldn't run it any longer. I didn't have the support. I didn't have, mm -hmm. okay, any staff or anything like that. And I don't know much about computers now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I turned it over to the American Bankruptcy Institute, partly because of that and partly because I had been the face of care. Mm -hmm. for all those years. And I was one of these people of the opinion that sometimes founders of organizations stay too long mm -hmm. and they don't know when to get out. Yep. And it keeps people, other people from Moving new forward. ideas yeah. and being motivated and feeling a part of ownership of it because yeah. you're always just smothering all the oxygen. Yeah. So I, I left. When I ran it, it was only bankruptcy professionals, okay. trustees, bankruptcy attorneys, mm -hmm. judges, because I thought we had this unique experience with the stories that we can tell that no one else could tell. True stories. And I'll give you a corny example. So there is a national financial literacy web-based program called Foolproof. Mm -hmm. It's international. Yep. The education director is Mike Schiffer. Mm -hmm. who was a longtime um, educator at Corning, yeah. business teacher. Yeah. And he writes all the modules. I did not know that. Yes. I did not know that he wrote all those. Yeah. And so he huh. had me in every semester while he was still teaching. And I go there every semester now uh, to talk to his students. And what he said, I'm paraphrasing, you know, but what he basically said is this. 
I've been teaching this for 30 years. I know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I run all the modules for foolproof. I tell them exactly what you tell them, but they listen to you mm-hmm. because you're a bankruptcy judge and you could tell them stories that stories. no one else can yeah. credibly tell them yeah. about people that you've seen that have been in your court mm-hmm. and so forth. And so I always thought that care, that was what care was about, a unique niche that would send these bankruptcy professionals with this unique knowledge and experience. Now care being run as an independent not-for-profit does partner up with bankers and financial planners and accountants and CPAs. That's fine. I mean, the message is the same, but I don't think it's the same when it comes from the words are the same. But the message, the messenger is different. Yeah, it would be interesting if if you took somebody like myself who has stories as well, but they're stories from a different angle, right? They haven't, people will sometimes come to us and they're, they don't know which direction to go. I mean, they've just, they've taken their head out of the sand, which is the first step. And now what do I do? How do I get this corrected? And it takes a lot of hard work. Like, a, you know, a ton of hard work. And the question will sometimes come up, should I just declare bankruptcy? Like, is that, do I wipe the slate clean and, you know, start over? I'm like, well, you can't wipe some slates clean. Like, you can't wipe student loan debt clean. And that's where or we matrimonial see... matrimonial debt or fraud debt or anything. So, okay. you know, the, the student loan aspect of things is where we see a lot of problem, right? Sure. Especially not just in the government aspect of things, but private loans have the same privilege that a public loan has for student loan debt. So we try to educate people on that. And then we try to also educate them on what it does to their credit long term, how long it stays on their record, what that means for them as far as, you know, going forward, what they're going to have to do around cash, because that's about all they're going to be able to do for a few years. So we can tell stories on that aspect of things. But what we can't do is tell the story that you can tell from sitting on that bench doing bankruptcy case after bankruptcy case after bankruptcy case. And and being a proactive judge like myself, asking a lot of questions Mm -hmm. and so forth and being tough on people. I mean, part of this program, when I ran it, National Public Radio referred to it as a scared straight credit program for students. Okay. Explain. Well, because we had these horror stories of real people every day from every demographic, and that yeah. oftentimes is the difference. Yeah, people only think that it's people Poor that don't, people that don't have resources, right? Right. right? right, and they have never. So I always tell this story because it's one of the first stories I ever tell. I literally had a class of students from a high school, inner city high school in Rochester one day, into the court on my Chapter 13 calendar. That's mm-hmm. the individual reorganization calendar. Mm-hmm. And that day, those students got to see Two engineers, this is 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. two engineers and a pharmacist, all making well over Mm -hmm. $150,000 a year, Mm -hmm. which was a lot of money then. Mm -hmm. I'm kidding. It's a lot of money now. It is. is. Half a dozen teachers, they're the worst. And I can say that because my wife's a retired high school teacher. (laughs) Half a dozen nurses Mm -hmm. and the comptroller which is the chief financial officer of one of our major universities in Rochester. I won't say which one. Mm -hmm. Hopelessly buried in credit card debt. All in one day. Okay. All that day. 
And you can come to bankruptcy courts. He did every day when I was on the bench. Totally unable to explain to me as the bankruptcy judge how they got into so much credit card debt and how they ever thought they were going to get out of it. And these kids left in shock with their jaws dropped, not understanding how people who are so highly educated Mm -hmm. and otherwise successful in their careers Mm -hmm. could be so clueless Mm -hmm. about debt, credit cards, managing their money and so forth. And so I use that for the proposition, okay, that also that it is not about how much money you have. It is how you manage your money. And you've got to get about the business of learning how to manage your money in this hyper-consumer society that we live in. And so those are the kinds of stories. And I tell them, you could see this every day. Yeah, I will have people. I mean, they're embarrassed when they come in here a lot of times. I don't know if you saw that in court as well. They're embarrassed by their situation. and Mostly they're just afraid of me. I You know, I had people cry. I've had people say, I can't believe I let this happen. You know, I don't know how it happened. I can't believe it let it happen. I feel so stupid. I mean, these are some of the things that I've heard over time. And I'll say, look. You know, you're really smart in your particular career because you were educated. The problem that we have here in the United States is that not not that many states, more states don't require financial education in their school system than do require education in the school system. I think it's like 17 states or something like that in the United States. Well, that's at last count. At last count, require some kind of financial education. Now, some of like New York State does have a couple of the school systems that have elected to have that as a course, but not to the degree like... Not to the degree, like in Hornell, I know they have a financial education course. Pam Mandel um, teaches that class. And I went to high school with Pam and actually I worked for her dad. Um, My very first financial Mm -hmm. job was her dad. And she teaches that. Um, My nephew is going to be taking that class this year and he's really excited about it. But see, he's in a position that many children aren't because Aunt Amy <laughs> has required him to be somewhat educated in finances right from the get-go. Because right. So the, the problem is this. So I've, I've been for 21 years advocating mandatory personal finances in, this, awesome. in the schools. Um, and th- there's so many levels of this. So one of the things that's troublesome is that we keep pushing these college-ready courses, mm-hmm. okay, But the reality is a little over 30% of high school students in this country don't go on to any kind of college, community college or anything. So I say, okay, how about if we just make those kids take a personal finance class because they're going out in the real world tomorrow. The problem is like in New York State, we in theory have mandatory personal finances because one of five units of economics classes, which is required for a, for a, you know, a degree, a, um, what do they call it? Regents diploma requires that. But every teacher addresses that section differently. Okay. But a personal finance class, a class that is specifically. Most of them are only voluntary. They're electives. Yeah. And then the question is, I keep trying to tell parents, make your kid. I wrote a a series of articles on what they would learn if you made them take one. The parents could learn. (laughs) Well, that's why I send it home. We send it home with them. But but the point is that um, in Rochester, okay, Monroe County and Wayne County, which adjoins it, there are only five school districts 
in those two counties that have mandatory personal finance classes. Two counties? Out of two counties, right? Monroe and Wayne County. And so it's something we really should be doing. Kids desperately need it. They had a survey in 2017, 47% of students said they didn't feel that they could handle their finances in college. And these are the good ones going to college. Yeah. Well, a lot of the professionals <clears throat> that come out of college, are, they never took any kind of financial money. I feel really lucky because in high school, I had a teacher by the name of Lenny Crusoe. And I featured Lenny in the past and um, I've written about him. And he, he taught in accounting class, actually. But a lot of what he taught was actually personal. He weaved in a lot of personal finance into that accounting class, thankfully, and developed a love for it in me. You know, and I could see what it what it was like right. to be in that personal finance space. So I feel really fortunate. And I think if anybody of all of my classmates that took his class, I think, you know, a lot of us went into that profession or some kind of finance profession because we could see what it could do for, for our lives. So I feel really lucky, but not a lot of people had that was an elective course I right. happened to take. But, you know, I. I was in 56 different schools last year and did two, over 250 presentations. And the teachers that I teach for are wonderful. Yeah. Even at the middle school level, there are some of them that teach personal finances as part of math classes. Yeah. Because they're just committed to do that. It's yeah. not part of the curriculum. Right. Exactly. They, and, the, and they're the good teachers. And I don't mean this in a bad way. My wife's a retired high school teacher. Yeah. But, you know, they know their kids are all going to pass the test. So they can take a little time yep. to branch out into this other area because they don't have the administration on their back all the time and stuff yep. like that. Yep. So even in, the, and I, in, I think eight different middle schools and we sort of have a different approach in middle school. We talk about money is hard work. We talk about frugal versus cheap. You know, yep. we talk about being a good shopper or yep. things like that. So we really more and more in the middle school sort of with this different message, but some, and here's the thing, Amy, that really shocks me. I have been advocating this for 21 years. I can't tell you how many people all over this country I have talked to. I have not run ever into one adult who says, well, that would be a stupid idea. Yeah. They all say we should yeah. be doing it. Yeah. And yet the school districts don't do it. Yeah. And it's not about money because we have a big school district in Rochester, mm -hmm. uh, Webster. Mm -hmm. Okay. That has two high schools and it's a yeah. huge district. And I talked to the superintendent one day. They are one of the five that has mandatory personal mm -hmm. finance. He said, I could find the money. If I could find it, anybody could yeah. find it. It's yeah. about realizing that this is important, this is important yeah. and that is something that needs to be done, but there's nobody, the only, it, it's never the parents. The parents don't say, you know, mm -hmm. that's a dumb idea because everybody, at least intellectually says, that's a great idea. Yeah. Of course we should be doing that. I was looking up the course that my nephew is going to take. It's called career and financial management. Yeah. That is the actual well, I actually do it, a, so. uh, who's, who teaches it? Uh, it's Pam Mandel is okay. the name of the. Cause I do a senior assembly at Hornell. Yeah, this so is I talked to all the seniors for ninth grade, yeah. but so no, I mean Pam, um, she's a great. Um, like I said, I I worked for her dad. Her maiden name was Cleveland. I worked for her dad for my very her dad for my very first finance job That's in a great. trust company and graduated with her. And so I was really excited yeah. um, to see that this was in his 
second, this was his second grade class or second semester, second period class for his ninth grade. And I think that that's really, I'm glad to see that. And I mentioned to him, my nephew, I said, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I could come and be a guest speaker. And my nephew was very excited about that. He's like, well, if you need me help, Amy, just let me know. (laughs) Because people that have listened to this podcast know that when my nephews were, well, I have uh, two nieces now and seven nephews. And when all of them were born, they all had what they needed. Right. And, and so my husband and I said, we aren't going to buy big gifts for Christmas or for birthdays or anything like that. What we are going to do is contribute to a 529 plan for them. If they decide they aren't going to go to college, we'll come up with a way to give them that money in some way, shape or form. But we believe in the fact that they will, will likely, even, even if it's just a trade school or something, and I don't mean that like that's bad, you know, in some respects, I, I, well, I think that we try to push our kids sometimes towards an education that isn't right for them. Like, I think, education is wonderful and everybody should be educated. But I think some people are more geared towards a technical education, a trade school education versus an, you know, a book and mortar, you know, education. I talk about that all the time. If you, if you indulge me, I tell kids, so the college for everyone crowd tells you, if you get a college degree, you'll make on average $23,000 $23,000 a year more than a high school graduate. That's what the last mm-hmm. time I looked at it. everything I do sometimes dated because, yeah. you know, and I say that's absolutely true because it's a bell curve. It's a bell curve. Okay. Yeah. So that's true because in that number are the $3 million plastic surgeons in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, the $2 million a year Wall Street lawyers, the $6 billion hedge fund managers right. that live in Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. And so, but on the, you, one of the things I tell kids when it comes to student loan debt and so forth is you have to determine where you're going to be on the bell curve of life. Okay. Which is that. So, because on the low end of this bell curve over here are high school or college graduates making $25,000 a year. Okay. And $50,000 of student loan debt. And on the other side of the bell curve, are hardworking, ambitious plumbers and electricians yes. making $130,000 and they don't have any debt. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> where are you going to be on the bell curve of life? Then where are you going to be on the bell curve of your career? So if you're going to be a chemical engineer and you're going to graduate from the bottom 50% of your class at a SUNY school, how are you going to stack up? against somebody who graduates number two in their class from MIT. That's the bell curve of your career. You have to look at those two bell curves and realistically figure out where you're going to line up before you start going and, you know, and borrowing a lot of money to get an education. Okay. That's step one, but it's true. Yeah. And and even, you know, some people will say, well, I, you know, my kids got to go to this school or that school because that'll give them the best job. And I say, well, you know, I think it does matter when they first come out of college, but I think the catch up time, the ambition that you have behind that when you come out of college, like I graduated from a SUNY school and mm-hmm. I had enormous ambition. Right. So, I mean, I worked hard. I worked long days mm-hmm. after about a three or four year period of time. I started to surpass the classmates that went to a private school that has a higher reputation than a school school. After about 10 years, 
again, that ambition and that continued drive to be educated in other ways, to continue to seek education and grow in my career and, you know, try different things and to be curious, to explore, to ask the whys, that is going to, that is going to catch up. So the fact that I walked out of college the first time, basically with no debt whatsoever. The second time I did have a little debt because I actually got my master's degree. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, it was a, a bit, um, but I don't feel like that master's degree probably didn't earn me anything more, but it mm-hmm. certainly educated me more. Right. Well, I tell kids because I've talked to a number of HR people and hiring people in companies and things like that. And this is a broad generality and it, it, it doesn't necessarily hold true depending on the individual you're talking about. But most of them in today's world in 2019 will tell you, I'd rather have somebody who graduated in the top 5% of their class from Geneseo mm-hmm. than somebody who graduated from the bottom 5% of their class from Harvard. Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah. when you actually look at the individual people, that may not be true, but yeah. they're not stupid. Yeah. They understand that to get to be in the top 5% of this place like Geneseo, you've got to yeah. work hard and have all those qualities <laughs> that you <laughs> talked about. And if you're in the bottom 5% of your class at Harvard, what has that shown you? <laughs> so it isn't necessarily about the school. So I want to switch gears just a little yeah. bit because I feel like I'm getting on my high horse. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the care program because you're out talking about this in all the school systems. You want to continue talking about this in all the school systems. And, and, and doing more schools here in this area we, and, and, and all over New York. Yeah. You know, having this, when you, when you go in, you talk for what, a, a classroom period? Is that what you do? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's like everything else. So, um, sometimes I only get 42 minutes. I don't know why, but all the school periods have gotten so much smaller over the years. Maybe they're just trying to get more classes in or whatever they're doing. But I still go to some schools that are block scheduling where I get an hour and 20 minutes Mm. with them and I can do everything, Mm -hmm. answer all the questions and do everything. And I have sort of two levels. So I do uh, a scared straight program. Okay. Okay. Which is... Why do you have to learn about finances for the stress that I talked about? Mm-hmm. Eight of the top 14 stressors and so forth like that. Don't be one of the statistics, 47% of kids who can't handle the finances in college. They did a survey in 18 of millennials and only 12% said they thought they could handle their finances for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. This is what, And so I tell them, this is why you've got to take classes, why you've got to learn, why you've taken every opportunity that you can to learn. The only th- other thing I talk about in this introduction scared straight thing is defend yourself against the financial industry. And I tell them I worked for 11 different banks. I, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I tell them about Wells Fargo. You know, I have these things, Wells Fargo, find, you know, $100 million. After it was just find $185 million, mm-hmm. okay, for the false accounts that opened. And mm-hmm. then you think these people go away, mm-hmm. ever go to jail, change their stripes a year later, a $1 billion fine. And then a year after that, a $385 million fine. I said, these people will take advantage of you every day. And I tell them what the world was like when I was in the 60s with no credit. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. So I tell them, I went to Georgetown undergraduate, served in the United States Marine Corps, went to Boston University Law School, top 20 law school when I went mm-hmm. there, came back, was working one of the best law firms in Rochester when I applied for my first credit card. 
and they would only give me a $500 limit because <laughs> I had improved in those days mm-hmm. of personal responsibility, mm-hmm. okay, and debt is not okay, mm-hmm. that I could actually pay back more. Mm-hmm. And now I have kids in my court in 1994, okay, like Christine, with $50,000 of credit cards, $60,000 of student loan debt, and she's working at $25,000 yeah. a year job. And so I try to tell them how different the world is and how we had usury laws and all this kind of stuff. I'm just going, kind of going through it. Yeah. And, um, and I talk about how people would take advantage of. Mm-hmm. And so they don't understand it. So I say, when I was growing up, when I got my first home in the 70s, there were three kinds of mortgages. In order to get a mortgage, you had to put 20% down unless you were a veteran like me, and then you could put 10% down. Yeah. Your principal interest taxes and insurance couldn't be more than 25 to 28% of your income. And that was a hard and fast rule. If you didn't qualify, you didn't get that house because you couldn't get that mortgage. And we didn't have any fancy programs in the 1960s to help people get houses that you can't, they can't afford. So when you come to my bankruptcy court every day, I'll show you people who are living in 40% ratios, houses. That's part of the reason they're there. And then I tell them, this is a true story. I don't know if you're boring you just tell No, me. no, please. 2009, I'm at a, conference at the Treasury Department in Washington, D.C. And the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury says today there are 28 different residential mortgages. And he says, not me, to be honest with you, the only people who understand 4 through 28 are the lawyers and the accountants. The bankers don't even understand them. They just give them talking point sheets and they upsell everybody mm-hmm. because people have no clue. And I tell them about, you know, all these college graduates, Mm-hmm. You know, getting foreclosed out of their houses because they got mortgages between four and 28, never did the math themselves, never looked at that ratio on the internet, right. never did anything, happens every single day. And when I told that, I'll just tell you this is a perfect story. I tell them the story when I said that at Menden High School in Rochester, the business teacher said, please let me tell my story. We wanted to get a new home. And so I did all the math on what we could afford, did my budget and everything like that. I say, if he's a business teacher, you know, that's what they do. They crunch numbers. They, <laughs> they love doing that. <laughs> he goes into the bank and he said, I want to get pre-approved for a mortgage in this amount. And I explained to them what that all mm-hmm. is about. And they said, no problem. But you should know that you could afford something $80,000 yeah. more. Uh, and he said, what are you talking uh, about? I've done all that. Why would you even say that? And I tell him, this is the world you live in. And I heard this commercial again this morning. I don't know if you have it in Corning. It's a radio commercial. I haven't heard it. But, but this, it says. It's not a mortgage. No. Oh. Credit cards. Oh. It says, don't let the credit card companies fool you into thinking that you actually have to pay back all your credit card debt because we're going to help you. And I say to the kids, this is the world you live in, not my world. Because my dad served in World War II with the 10th Mountain Division and was awarded a Bronze Star. And if they ran a commercial like that in the 1960s, People like my dad would have gone down to the radio station <laughs> and burned the place to the ground for being so irresponsible as to put that over the airways where their kids could hear it. And today, I don't think it just goes over everybody's head. I don't think they understand how that trickles down into the consumer because when, you know, when people don't pay their debts off, it ultimately does end up affecting things, the pricing on the consumer um, side as well. I don't think, you know, from an economic perspective, I don't think people really understand how it impacts the country as a whole. And that's, 
Um, I, you know, I've seen cases where you mentioned over the age of 65. I've seen cases that we've, we've had clients where their medical expenses are so large. Their, their prescription medical expenses are so large. They don't qualify for Epic. You know, so they can't get any assistance on that end. They don't qualify for Medicaid's. Their income is way too high for that. And, and for a while, when the donut hole was lar- much larger than it is right now, people were really, really, really suffering um, with huge $10,000, $11,000 a year in medical expenses because no drug company would cover a particular drug that they were taking or they wouldn't cover it at a reasonable rate. So I've seen that other side of that age 60. When you said that, I'm like, I know why. <laughs> it's the medical side of things and, and a piece well, is the medical I, side. I, I vote when... When I was on the bench, one of the candidates running for president, who was a professor at the time, that narrows it down, <laughs> wrote about how the biggest cause of bankruptcy were medical expenses, and it was totally debunked by another college professor in California. Um, and when that came out, my chief judge in Buffalo called me and said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "I don't even." Do you see this? I said, no. And after all these years of people talking about this is the number one cause of bankruptcy, yeah. this is so much for people, older people, finally NPR to their credit yesterday said that, yeah, 50 cent, 50% of bankruptcies today are partly caused by medical mm-hmm. expenses because on their schedules, they have some unpaid medical expense, but mm-hmm. it doesn't make it the cause. No, it doesn't make it the cost. But that's the biggest myth in this country that I'm always trying to debunk. I've written so much about this. People say job loss, divorce, medical expenses, and so forth. But it's really the credit card debt Mm -hmm. or the home equity loan debt. Because here's the deal, and I just use this example. You have a couple has no credit card debt, a reasonable mortgage with a lot of equity, two reasonable car loans, they get divorced. They don't have to, they won't go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. There's no debt for them to get rid of. One of them is going to live in the house and buy the other out. They're going to sell it and split mm-hmm. the proceeds. Mm-hmm. They can afford those cars mm-hmm. on their salary. And they have no credit card debt and they often run, they're often running two houses. A couple with $40,000 in credit card debt mm-hmm. has to go bankrupt. Because they can't run two houses anymore and pay off their debt. Mm -hmm. So is it the divorce that caused the bankruptcy? No. It's the credit card debt. The divorce was just what brought it all forward. And that happens with a lot of medical debt. So you'll see people, you know, who have forty, fifty thousand dollars of credit card debt. They get maxed out on their credit cards. Now they got to get a $3,000 crown. They don't have any money to pay for it. They go to a bankruptcy lawyer or a or a credit counselor, they say you should go bankrupt, they go bankrupt, but they'll tell you that it was a medical debt because they won't tell you it's the credit card debt. Sometimes they don't even know this, you know, that they're saying something wrong, you know. And so there's a lot of that. And and for my years on the bench, for the most part, it was a credit card debt. Occasionally, we could see a man with living within his means, no credit card debt, no otherwise debt, everything reasonable, and an idea of $90,000 of chemo expenses right, that weren't covered right, by insurance. Right. And that's exactly the debtor that bankruptcy was meant for. Mm-hmm. The honest but unfortunate yeah. debtor. 
Yeah. And, and when I say that over the age of 65, what I'm talking about is the prescription side of things. So they put it on credit cards and they, then they, you know, that continues to grow and then they're trying to make the minimum payments and then they can't make the minimum payments and then their next prescription comes along. Okay. So it's absolutely the credit card debt. There's no question about but see, that. You know, one of the talk, things I talk about, Amy, is anticipated expenses. I just wrote an article about things, but I always talk about, so in today's world, you are 50 years old. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's happening, okay? Who knows what's going to be the medical situation? But why wouldn't you save your butt off mm-hmm. for all those medical expenses that you know everybody is having? In other words, we and so but no, do they? They just still have yeah. credit card debt, and they still do all these things, and they do that instead of saying, "Wait a minute." I've got to be prepared for this world that I hear about every day and I read about every day. And I better save every penny I possibly can for those drugs. Well, it's interesting. We have a system called WealthCare. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but it's a it's a program that we use for our clients. And one of the things that is in that particular proactive aging plan it, it throws it in our client's face. It estimates the amount of cost that they will have for their medical care in their retirement years. Remember the client earlier today, and the number was stifling. She's like, is that a true number? I'm like, yeah, that's a true number because she's in her early 60s. Her life expectancy is to age 92 based on a lot of different factors that are taken into consideration. Sure. So she's got about a 30-year span. And the number that we came up with was close to $450,000, Right. And she's like, well, I mean, now take into consideration, you were talking about a 30 year period, you add all that up, but it, that, it, but still we have to consider that a portion of that, you know, you've heard the 4% withdrawal rule, right? And we're like, well, that rule takes a lot of other things out of consideration when we think about those kinds of things. Like part of that 4% needs to go towards the cost of your medical expenses. And so when people hear these general kind of comments about, well, as long as you don't withdraw more than 4% from your portfolio, but wait a minute, we don't know what your healthcare costs are going to be. So let's take a step back. Let's look at these medical costs. Let's look at your cost of living and, and how you're going to spend retirement. And when you're in your 50s and your or early 60s and you're looking at this stifling number of $450,000, it's in your face awareness of what that's going that's to be. Cool. Break that down to a monthly basis and you're almost at you know $1,000 a month, not quite, but almost there a month. We better plan for that. That needs yeah. to be part of that. That's great. Rate, I'm, so, right? I'm so proud of you for doing that. I, I mean, I... My wife and I both have good pensions. She's a retired teacher. We have good medical insurance. Mm-hmm. But I have a ton of money saved for what happens right. if one of us has to, you know, be on, you know, expensive Assisted drugs yeah. or, you know, things yeah. like that. Yeah. So I, you know, so I never tell anybody to do something with their finances that I don't do. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's amazing. The program that you have is incredible. It's, I I hope that more people are interested in it and want to continue bringing this back into the school system. I have absolutely loved this conversation. Mm -hmm. I think it could probably go on for hours on end. (laughs) Why don't you have me come back sometime? I would love to have you come back. In fact, knowing that you're going to be in the school systems here in the fall and in the spring, we'd love to have you uh, stop by. In fact, what we'd love to do if the school system would ever be open to it is to actually record you 
providing the students with this, the, with this lesson, because when you talk about being able to get out to the masses, um, you're, you're one person. You can do more than what you're doing right now because you now are retired. But it would be great if, if we could actually promote this program right. at a broader level. Some schools and, actually do tape it you know, for other if they could get little tidbits of oh, what they're going to hear, yeah. you know, that yeah. would be so incredible. Right. So when you know what your schedule is for the fall, sure. absolutely, we'd love to have you come I'd back. I'd love to do it. I'm sure the listeners would love to have you. They probably have kids. Well, if I'm not in your kid's school, <laughs> that's right. right. So if we're, I don't know how far this goes out, but just to tell you, I am in Horseheads. I am in Corning. I am at Campbell, Savona, and I am in two of the Almarva schools. Yeah, we actually have people, when you look at the demographics from the download data, we have people pretty much all over the country that are listening to this. The biggest areas are on the East coast. Like, so from, I would say from Northern New York around its area down into the four States. Cause I have the practice that's down in that area too, but we have listeners out in Oklahoma. Cause but we have, you there. know, we have care people all over the country. It's a yeah. national program. So I'll just tell you a typical kind of a story. I know you're associated with Alfred state as yep. is Scott. Yep. And I went and I talked to one, uh, two of his classes one day and there was a young man there, uh, Muhammad, who was, was the chairperson yep. of the financial planning group. Yep, the financial planning group. And he said, Judge, yep. could you go and talk to my brother's class in Brooklyn? Oh, wow. Okay. And I said, sometimes I am there because my wife's in music theater. She's had kids in 39 different Broadway shows. So wow. we're in New York a lot. And I just couldn't make it happen. So I turned him over to the New York Care Program and they coordinated to go school. into his brother's school yeah. in Brooklyn. So we, you know, we can, you can get in touch with the national care program, careforyourfuture.org. Yeah. And that if great. you're not in the New York area, Western New York area, if you are, I'll come. Sure. If otherwise we can hook you up. Well, I am so thankful again for your time today, driving all the way down. Um, What's well, a beautiful ride down three nights? <laughs> not when it's raining. <laughs> it's much prettier when it's not raining. <laughs> well, when I come down in the winter, I'm always like for two days crossing my fingers. Yeah. You know, because yeah. 390 can be tough because everything blows across. 50, it. It's not yeah, that you get more 50. snow than we do up yeah. in Rochester, but it's windy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank I you wish so we much had for more time. Yeah, like and I, I said, applaud you for the things that you're doing for your clients. Well, it's important. You. Can I just tell you one last thing? Absolutely. One of the things I talk about a lot now, if you're looking for a good gift for engagement gift, mm-hmm. or if somebody graduates from high school, okay. And they're going to go into the workforce rather than school or college graduate. Buy them a session with a, with a fee-based financial Oh, plan. we actually That's have a special session. That's the best gift you can give them. That's self, I do that all the time. A little self-promotion going on. We actually developed modules for that particular region. We have a newlywed module, which is pre-marriage and newly married. We have a uh, graduate, which is both for high school graduate. And then we also have one for college graduate. And we have a um, another module that's a, kind of around a holiday or get fit kind of type module. But those three that I mentioned, the newlywed and the graduate ones, they were specifically meant to be a, a Kickstarter program. And um, Carrie Bean, kind of, she's one of our financial planners, one of our CFPs. She kind of run those runs those three programs. Although all of us do it, you know, we're all consistent. But we feel like that's where the impact actually is. Right. And our pricing structure for like $249, $399 is really, you know, it's, it, 
it's a big gift right. if somebody's, you know, if somebody's just writing a check for it. But for a parent to say, look, we're going to start you out or you can, in life you know, or if, multiple people. If you're an aunt, you yeah. can get together with another aunt, aunt or uncle. Yeah. And, you know, I, so I think that's a I, I wrote a, a column about um, a great gift that you may not have thought about. Yeah. That's what I call it. Well, we think it's an awesome gift, but I we're prejudiced to it as well. Right. And, you know, I think the interesting part about not to keep going, but one of the interesting parts that you said when you're talking to your students that just came to mind is beware of the institutions out there. Because um, when I first started out in this profession, I was fortunate to start out in a trust company. So I was sort of born into the fiduciary world. And I did a short stint where I worked in a broker dealer in, just, you know, in the profession, in the broker dealer world. And I was like, what is going on with all you people? What are these production limits? And how can I have to push this product this month versus this product? You know, what are we supposed to be like doing? And not, being a CFP, aren't we supposed to do what's in the best interest of the client always, you know? So when I ventured out into my own business and we said, you know, we're not going to sell products. We're just going to give advice. There were a number of people that said, you'll never make it with that model because we don't charge based on assets under management. We just charge a flat fee. Right, so fee it's, based. Yeah, it's kind of like an attorney, right? Which is what I recommend for everybody. We, and it's not even a percentage of assets. It is a flat fee that you pay us for the services that you're getting. And and we set it up kind of under that same, I would say, similar module to sort of a law firm, only you know, we don't spend down the retainer. It's just, this is what you pay for us for the year. And everybody kept saying, but you're limiting your, um, you're limiting, you know, the amount of money that you can earn or you're, you're never going to succeed with that model. And here we are <laughs> still going. Sure. Is it hard work? Sure. It's hard work. Am I making as much as, you know, the person down the street? No, I'm not. But can I look at myself in the mirror and when I go to bed at night saying I'm doing the right thing? I do. You know, somebody who has $500,000 in assets versus a million dollars in assets generally isn't going to have any more complexity. And if they do, then we just charge them a bit of a higher flat fee than the person that has 500,000. So for me, when you talk about the front, when you talk about beware of financial, ask the questions about the fees. There's always a fee. Right, and that's one of the reasons something. to take courses and to learn yeah. about this because you don't even know sometimes the questions to ask, to ask. and people yeah. are too trusting. And yeah. the other thing that we've come to, and I'll just end, is I tell people all the time, I had this conversation with some people the other day. Part of the debt is okay society that we live in and the problem that we have in this country is we went from a time when I was growing up, which I call a balance sheet basis of affordability. Mm -hmm. If you had all your bills paid, you had your savings, you had everything taken care of, and you had extra money, you could afford something. Yep. Today, we live in a cash flow society. So if you can make the minimum payments on that yes. car loan, on that credit card, on that home equity loan, on that student loan or whatever, you can afford it, which is a total fallacy. Yeah. And yet that is what the market has become. told us. Mm -hmm. It's about the monthly payment, which I think is one of the greatest marketing mm -hmm. accomplishments in the history of the world, <laughs> even before the Romans. And can I tell you one more story? You can. Okay. I work at Ganondagam, which is the site of the largest village of the Seneca Nation of Indians. Okay. Yeah. And I was talking about wants, wishes, luxuries, and conveniences. Yep. So I learned this thing as part of this discussion with our historian. And in the 1550s, the Mohawks were mm -hmm. trading with the French. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And I refer to it as the first time that Americans learned about wants, wishes, luxuries, and conveniences <laughs> instead of needs. Yeah. So they were trading for beaver pelts, and the beaver pelt was the was the standard of exchange. Mm -hmm. So for a beaver pelt, you could get two axes, you could get eight mm -hmm. knives, you could get some things. So what would happen, the problem was at that point, they would go in with a beaver pelt and they'd say, I want an axe. And they said, well, you could have two axes. And Native Americans said, I don't need to ask because <laughs> they were all about needs. They were indigenous people. And they didn't have a system of carryover where you could have a credit yeah. for half a beaver pelt and you could come back in the spring and get the equivalent of half a beaver pelt. So they started pushing wants, wishes, luxuries, and conveniences on Americans for the first time. Well, don't you want a pint of rum with that? Don't you want a metal pot? Don't you want, 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 want instead of need? And so for... What is it now for 600 years or whatever? Retailers and merchandisers have been perfecting <laughs> that message of wants, wishes, luxuries, and conveniences instead of needs. That was the first time Americans were exposed to the concept of wants and wishes. Yeah. <laughs> so what were we brought up in? <laughs> Full circle back in the vineyard, as I say. Um, you know, this has been a very enjoyable. And honestly, when you do get down to the school district, we would I'll love to have you on again. And, uh, you know, if they'll let us come in and actually record this because this has been been fabulous Thank i you so will much. um i don't know what your schedule is like but i think it's september 2nd okay so the first day of i'll be at teachers. alfred state oh alfred state okay. at uh scott's now that's not anywhere near here but that's on a monday oh it's on labor day or no it's not then it's fourth or something okay it's the fourth or whatever okay but just so you know because i'll be at with scott tomorrow oh yeah. nice i think that if it's the fourth i'll actually be in dc no i mean whatever it is it's that <laughs> that week yeah no well that's wonderful and those kids will love having you I'm sure <laughs> yeah I love talking to college kids they're the best well right? you know why because they all get my jokes mm -hmm. in the high schools and the middle schools a lot of them pretty much think it's a joke <laughs> but then they're afraid because what if I embarrass the joke what if I laugh and it's not a joke <laughs> whereas the college students they could care less they just laugh <laughs> <laughs> well I appreciate Scott's recommendation to you and I appreciate your time but thank you so much thank you Amy and that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime you can contact Amy through the website www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.